You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Today, I'm speaking with Reverend Dr. Benjamin Boswell. He is the pastor at Myers Park Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he is a former infantry officer in the U.S. Army. He also facilitates anti-racism training for whites entitled, What Does It Mean to Be White? Today, we'll talk about Lillian Smith's influence on his work, his anti-racism workshops, the connections between social justice work and religion, and Smith's essay, The White Christian and His Conscience. Thank you for joining me, uh, Reverend Boswell. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's a pleasure to, um, to have you here. We, we spoke a while back about some of your work, and I talked to you actually about your time at Duke, at Duke Divinity School, where you got your Master of Divinity. And when I talked to you, you actually told me that Lillian Smith had and continues to have a huge impact on your life and work. She informed your dissertation and informed your work at Duke, and then, of course, informed your work now. Can you talk some about her impact on your studies at Duke and on her continued impact on your life and work today? Absolutely. Yeah, so you're going to love, love this. I was in a class that I was auditing in my last semester of seminary uh, called Sex, Gender, and Discipleship was the title of the course. And it was taught by Dr. Amy Laura Hall, brilliant Kierkegaard scholar and moral theologian and ethicist. And the whole class was about, of course, sex and gender, and then it, the way it intersects with Christian discipleship. And we read, uh, we were required to read Killers of the Dream. It was the first time I'd ever heard of Lillian Smith in my entire life. And I, you know, I'd read Harper Lee and Faulkner mm-hmm. and others and had never heard of Smith. So first thing, obviously reading her, just the language that she uses, the mastery of the English language alone was breathtaking to read the first time I read it. But the second thing about reading it, uh, it, was, it was the first time I'd ever heard or read a white person talking about being formed in white racial identity and the intersection in that book of being formed in whiteness and in patriarchy and in Christianity all at the same time and how they're interwoven and intermingled together. I'd never heard anybody narrate that so uh, in memoir fashion. I mean, I maybe saw some things academically, but never in like this sort of beautiful prose memoir and then to have such powerful theological insight and the date in which it was written. Like I was reading this right in 2003 and, you know, she had, had been published in 40, 43 early in you know, the part right, one. I mean, published I in 49 and she's doing these things earlier course in 43 and a couple of pieces and things like that. But that sex sin segregation kind of yeah. triangle she talks about and the way those things interweave. I found it interesting you said, too, that your introduction to the course to Southern literature, I mean, you're from Virginia, correct? Yeah. So, yeah, your introductions are Faulkner and Harper Lee. And I'm really interested in Harper Lee to kill, to kill a Mockingbird in relation to Smith because there are those discussions of religion there, especially right. with Miss Maudie and her missionary group. But that's a discussion for another time. They basically say that we're sending money overseas to Africa and African nations, but we're not doing what we need to do here, right? They're basically going along with everything, which is what Smith talks about. How does Smith continue to influence your work today? Well, yeah. One more thing about the time when I was at Duke, when I was reading Smith in that course, 
was when the Duke lacrosse scandal happened. Mm. And so we had a, we had a live contextual example of white sex segregation and sin Mm -hmm. live and in person for us to exegete. Now that was before we knew all the Nifong and stuff that came out from the, from the DA's office. But in the moment, hearing the professor talk about that in relationship to Smith was a life-changing experience for me. So, it was giving so me a whole new eyes. How did that conversation kind of go? Do you remember? The first day, I'll never forget, she came into the class and she was just silent for the first few minutes. She wouldn't let anybody speak. And then she wept. And then she opened it up for discussion, starting with allowing the black women in class to, to describe their experience of hearing the news. And that changed everything. What, what did that do for you pedagogically? That's an important kind of thing, I think, pedagogical um, moment. How do you view that pedagogically now? For me at the time, it was the first recognition, some of the first recognitions that I had had that when an event like that takes place, that the position of a person like myself with white male privilege uh, in Christian settings and in, in, in ecumenical settings should be to be silent and listen to the voices of those most marginalized and who have been the, the victims of historical racial oppression. Because, you know, our, my first reaction out of my whiteness, certainly when I was a seminary student, would not have been an appropriate thing to say. I might have been, I might have said something intelligent, but it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been what ne we needed to hear as a course. And so learning pedagogically to step back and, and receive first before trying to make any meaning and, and to see myself, this is, I think, this is going to go to the question you just asked, um, that Smith teaches, taught me how to see myself through other people's eyes, which she does so well. Right. And I mean, it's, it's what the boys talks about with double consciousness, of course, being African-American, seeing yourself through the eyes of whites. But then she reverses that and puts it on us too, which is what she talks about throughout the white person in this context. Exactly. Those are the dream. Yeah, reading her prepared me for later in life to be able to actually understand and receive James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, and you know theologians today that are writing on whiteness and what whiteness looks like. I I could not without Smith. I don't think I would have ever been able to get to the place where the the the, the scales would fall from my eyes and I could begin to see myself through the eyes of of uh, people of color. And, and see, I'm a little different. My initial kind of movement in is through Baldwin, Ellison, and mm -hmm. through, through that, through those authors, and then coming to Smith later. And then when I was reading The White Christian's Conscience, I actually thought about Baldwin, especially on page two, mm. at the bottom, where she says, we began by giving a name to this trouble, where folks feel better when they can find a name for what is troubling them. We called it, quote, the Negro problem projecting upon the Blacks the millstone that our conscience has hung around our own soul. Yes, and today we actually are still calling it the Black problem, though we don't know why and have never known why the Black is a problem. We simply tell ourselves he is, for we cannot bear to take the millstone back and put it on our own hearts where it belongs. And that reminds me of Baldwin. Mm -hmm. when, uh, yeah. And the price of ticket says, I'm not the end, you're the end. I give it back to you. It's your problem. I'm not the right. one who created this, right? That's right. Baldwin says it's a white problem. We have a white problem in America. And that's that's actually what's informed all my work now. And Smith continues to be that voice that helped me understand Baldwin and helped me understand Morrison and helped me be able to read those writers because I saw it through her eyes first, the formation of white racial identity. And this, you know, like you said, the sex segregation sin triumvirate. 
and the way that it impacts Christianity and my faith and my life and my work. And so, yeah, I mean, I think what I've come, what I come to grips with myself is we have a white problem. And that's really where my work begins is to try to help white people see what the white problem is and to shift the burden of responsibility for race and racism back onto white people. And then the question, of course, is how do we do that, which we can talk about a little bit, but yeah. it makes me think about this question following up with that one. You know, Smith says we need to acknowledge the sins we commit because she talks about guilt in here and the Puritan idea of guilt that affects us as well, right? Right. I mean, the effects of those sins, not only on Blacks, of course, she's talking in Jim Crow South, but on Muslims, immigrants, any individual who is not white European, white male European, if we even want to go further than that but on ourselves and our children as well. She's very focused on children and the effects mm -hmm. that these issues have on children, specifically white children, also black children as well. Through the camp that she ran, of course, and other things, she mm -hmm. talked about that a lot in, in Killers and Now is the Time and other texts. But she points out, and this is her, she says, quote, no mayor, no governor, no church, no president of the United States has ever appointed the committee to study the white man and his deep need to feel superior to other human beings and to have power over their lives. Right. And I'm, I'm thinking about certain things like the 1776 commission and things like that, but why is it important that we reflect on these things? And you're the pastor of a church and you've done this. Yeah. Why is it important that we need government officials? Cause that's what she lays out here or even say the educational system to do this, to have us reflect upon ourselves in our positions. Well, we're, she's 100% right on this, and I think history has simply just played out the answer and the proof of her, her, her comment here. Without having a truth and reconciliation process around the issue of slavery, Jim Crow, uh, I could go on, uh, lynchings, you know, all, all the kinds of segregation in housing, I mean, just all the different oppressions that have been meted out by white people on the Black community, We've never had a truth and reconciliation process on that. And so because of that, we continue to keep replicating white supremacy in our institutions. Systemic racism continues to get reborn in new ways right. um, in every generation. And if you look at like, for instance, comparing ourselves to South Africa or just to Germany, and you, you will not see a Nazi flag in a German state house. It's not going to happen unless, you know, white supremacists bring it in. And in that case, they'll be arrested and tried, Right. We don't have that. We have Confederate flags everywhere. We've never had the conversation we need to have about slavery. We have Confederate monuments. We have, we, we've never dealt with it. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's kind of like a, a ghost that continues to keep coming back and haunting our politics, our religion, uh, the church, our communities, because we've never gone back and buried the ghost appropriately. Right. You think about all those horror movies where the ghost continues to haunt you because something happened and we didn't deal with it. And so until we go back and go find out what really happened and do truth and reconciliation around it and bury the thing once and for all, it will haunt us forever. Yeah. And the question is that Smith tries to get is how do we deal with that? Yeah. And the question I have is, how do we get how do I get somebody to look at themselves when they don't think about looking at themselves? Mm -hmm. And you talk about that history and it goes back to that first line. The first line of this essay is one that I always go back to. Yeah. And it's, a, it's 16 words, I think. I mean, 18 words, sorry. It's not that long, but she says, ever since the first white Christian enslaved the first black man, the conscience of America has been hurting. Mm -hmm. That's an encapsulation, of course, to what you just said and what we still go through of American history and the current. Can you comment on that a little bit more? 
if you want to. You just said yeah, a lot. I love I that. As much you can add. I love that quote. It's really powerful. To me, what I think she's trying to get at is the psychic break. You, you, you used double conscious earlier. There's a lot of different psychological terms that you could describe for what happens when, uh, as she says, other places, I can't remember if it's, if it's here uh, in White Christian and it's conscious or in Killers of the Dream about how we wanted Jesus and slavery too. You know, we want these things. She we says that in a couple of different pieces, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think what happens is a schizophrenia in the white consciousness. This is what she says. Let us look at ourselves in humility and honesty. The white man in America was willing neither to give up Jesus nor to give up the slave. He was willing neither to give up democracy nor white supremacy. He was willing neither to give up his conscience nor his way of life. Today, he is still unwilling with the result that in many areas of his life, he has given up his sanity instead. And of course, he's very much steeped in psychology. Yeah. We cannot understand America and race without understanding the role that the conscience has played in our national drama and our personal lives. And it's still playing today. And she even has a phrase later, too, which I think is very pertinent, that we have Jim Crow Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we've, there's a fracture that's happened. There's a fracture in the soul of every individual white person in America, white Christian in America, that happens when you try to keep slavery and Jesus at the same time, or you Jim Crow Jesus. You, you, you fracture your Christianity and you fracture your own soul. And when you hear people and politicians nowadays saying, we want to heal the heart of America, we, we want to heal America, they're not just talking about the divisions that have been created in the last four to eight years. They're talking about trying to get at, or I think they should be, trying to talk about getting at the real, the real psychic wound that is in all of our souls, which is the wound of slavery. It goes back to that original fracture of trying to be a nation of freedom and trying to be people of faith who follow Jesus while at the same time enslaving other human beings. It just doesn't work. It breaks down and it fractures the soul. And I think Smith is brilliant at, at giving us a picture of what that fractured soul looks like and how, what the psychological effects of that are on not just the Southern society, but all of American society. But it also broke Christianity. I mean, it, it literally broke American Christianity. Um, and because if you think about it, you really get back one way I would kind of put some context around Smith's quote here is it was white Christians that created slavery. Mm-hmm. It was, it was white people who created white supremacy. The white Christian Jonathan Edwards. White. Yeah. So that when, if white Christians created white supremacy, then the problem was already in Christianity before it got here. Something was already broken in Christianity before it created white supremacy, before it got the first slave and, and, and brought it across the Middle Passage. Something was already wrong with the Christianity or it would have never been able to do that. Well, we have to remember, of course, that the church, you know, allowed the African slave trade after they decided not to enslave indigenous individuals in the Caribbean. Right. Right. That's right. And, and then, you of the course, doctrine of discovery from the, the papal doctrine of discovery where you can anywhere that anybody is not Christian, you can go and take their lands and their resources and enslave the people. So we, we have all of that. And I like the the fact that you mentioned that, that kind of split, because I always think back, the one verse I always think back to is Romans 13. Mm. Um, That the first part of that chapter, what nobody seems to quote with that chapter is Paul moves later on in that chapter to say, love your neighbor as yourself. Right. That's right. Right. So there's that movement from, yes, God appointed these individuals, if you, if you want to take that to these positions of power, but then it's, it's all love your neighbor as yourself. That's to be your key goal. That's right. And th- this all makes you think about, because we've used the Bible 
the Bible is used to justify slavery, justify a lot of atrocities mm -hmm. in history. And at the start of her essay, Smith compares the white American Christian conscience to the ways that Hitler rolled the German populace's conscience to sleep. Yeah. You know, allowing them to partake in the murder of six million Jews and countless others during World War II. And I just started diving into this. I didn't realize how much she kind of relied on Christian imagery. You know, mm. he couched the Holocaust in the Shroud of Christianity. There are other quotes, too, but this is one that stood out. He told a crowd in 1922, so before he came to power, my feelings as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. I believe I would be no Christian, but a very devil if I did not, as did our Lord 2,000 years ago, turn against those by whom today the German people are plundered and exploited. He's talking, of course, about Jews here, and he's using Jesus turning over the moneylenders table mm. at that point. So Smith focuses on the ways that Christianity becomes warped. And she talks about, like I said, the, the way that Hitler lulled the German conscience to sleep. And she says this quote at the very beginning, too. She's like, for Hitler was shrewd enough to know that a conscience is a heavy thing to take with you on a journey back to savagery. Mm. You're regressing. So she focuses on those ways that, that Christianity becomes warped to justify Jim Crow, segregation, racism, oppression. Because she talks about, my parents taught me to love my neighbor, that Jesus is my savior, yet I'm always better than a black person. Right, that's right. She says that in Killers or somewhere. But can you talk about the same, this some in relation to the church, or even maybe how we see it today? I'm, well, thinking, about yeah, I'm thinking about discussions of, of critical race theory from one. For sure. Yeah, let, well, I want to talk a little bit about, um, like, Germany for, a set, for a, a, what you brought up about Hitler and his use of Christian imagery. So if you look at churches at that time, the, the, you know, the altars were shrouded with Nazi flags, and they had brought these flags imagery into the church. So this ultra-nationalism, German nationalism, is, what, is, what the, is the bedrock of what becomes Nazi socialism uh, or, or Nazism. And, and so it's Christian nationalism that has become the bedrock of white supremacy in America. And when you look back at what Hitler did, it was, it seems so obvious to us now, but I'm, I'm sure it must have felt subtle to German Christians at the time, because like, for instance, when he appoints Mueller um, to be the Ludwig Mueller to be the Reich Bishop, Mueller is not theologically or ecclesiologically qualified for this role but he was Hitler's guy. And so he puts Mueller in charge. And one of the first things that Mueller does is rewrite the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to just read a few pieces of it for you. Uh, he updated the whole thing to make it more German. And so like he would take passage like Matthew 5, 4 through 5, and say, happy is the one who bears his sufferings like a man. He will find strength never to despair without courage. Happy is the one who's always a good comrade. He will make his way in the world. And he changes the Sermon on the Mount and they republish this translation. And this is now the translation that has to be used in German churches. So you think about how that doesn't seem very subtle to us. Like we would go crazy if somebody tried to create a new version of the Bible, right? But in fact, the preachers, preachers do that all the time in their sermons when they interpret the Bible. And they, they interpret the Bible through the lens of American Christian nationalism or American nationalism and try to make the Bible say what it wanted to say to affirm the values of this American exceptionalism. Well, that goes back to even our discussions of America being founded on Christian principles and the founders being Christian, right? Right. That's right. Yes, there are Christian principles in there, but learning about Jefferson, the Jefferson Bible, where he takes out Jesus being divine, he takes out the miracles, he takes out all these things. 
and makes it basically the gospel. He's rewriting the gospels. He's making the exactly. gospel through the lens of the enlightenment and science. Right. And in the meantime, a, Jefferson's the also yeah, he's also writing large treatises about the fact about the fact that African slaves are less than human. Right. Right. He has entire tracks about that. So those don't comport together. Right. right. And the psychic break is already present in Jefferson. The psychic breaks already present in every slave holder who was at the Continental Congress. Right. They've already accepted that slavery and following Jesus can exist hand in hand. And that means that they've already made sense of psychologically in an insane and absurd way, I think Lily Smith would say, of the break or this this marriage of these two incompatible things together. Um, which is why, this is why I think to your point about critical race theory, this is why we need to look at critical race theory today and spend time with it and can't be, um, I think, dissuaded by politics around it right now. I mean, it is, it's a well-respected academic discipline. And that's part of, this leads into what I did with my project. So what I tried to do with a project that I created for local churches to, to work through race is to put critical race theorists, particularly whiteness scholars, critical whiteness studies, which is a subset of critical race theory, put whiteness studies scholars in conversation with Christian theologians, particularly black liberation theologians, who are all writing on what whiteness is and to create a curriculum of black authors, intellectuals, and creatives over the last 100 years who have written about whiteness and to put that and to read them week in and week out in a seven to eight week process and to have white people in a white affinity group read these black intellectuals and authors writing about whiteness to put up that mirror in some, some of the same ways that Smith does, to put that mirror up in front of us to see ourselves through the eyes uh, of what black people are saying whiteness looks like. You know, James Weldon Johnson, black scholar, once said that black people know white people better than they know and understand themselves. And of course, that's true because they had to understand for their own survival, the moods and the swings and the eye fluttering and the psychology of their white masters in order to keep themselves and their people safe. If the, if the master didn't get a good breakfast, that could mean death for their family, right? So they had to know everything. And so they, that, and I think that's one of the ways to get people invest, invested in the turn is to appeal to their own desire for self-understanding. You know, I think most people, and I'm not saying all people, but most people, when you talk to them and say, you know, don't you want to really get to know yourself more? There are people who will say, you know what I do? I want to be able to know who I am. I want to know my history. I want to understand myself. And if you tell them there's no way you can truly understand yourself as a white person without seeing yourself through the eyes of black people, then you, you now you have, now you have piqued their interest and their conscience to try to say, come down this journey and let's look at what does it mean to be white and, and what does it mean to be white in American history and what does it mean to be a white Christian in American history and that's how I kind of try to get people to walk down the journey because you know white people don't ever talk about what it means to be white we, we don't have to right we can avoid the conversation about race as long as we want to because it's not it's not forced upon us by society and by society right. people don't justice. typically refer to me as a white man Exactly. You know, so you, we, we can get away with never talking about it. It's an invitation to get them to look at something they've never looked at before. The other way I would say it is, you know, Baldwin has that great quote, white people are trapped in a history they don't understand. And until they understand it, they can't be released from it. Yeah. I think that's what Smith's trying to say. Also, I, I think most of her work is, is right about this idea that white people have actually 
enslaved ourselves through our own process of dehumanizing others. We've dehumanized others and, de and we've lost a sight of our own humanity. That's what happens when we break that Christianity and slavery, trying to hold it together. We lose our own humanity when we try to hold these two things that are incompatible together. That's what she says in Colors of the Dream, that the frame around the black child's neck is the same around the white child's. Exactly. So the work of looking at, you know, we don't do the, we don't, we need to help white people to bear the burden of responsibility for whiteness and white supremacy and racism, but to do so, not just, not to help their black neighbors, you know, that becomes kind of this paternalistic thing. Oh, right. we're here. Let's talk about racism to help our black friends. No, this is for our own survival. Mm -hmm. This is for the sake of our own nation, for the sake of democracy. If we don't do this, we're going down with the ship, you know? And I think that's the key about Smith like I keep saying when I talk to different people is she focuses on herself, even though she doesn't apparently focus on herself the whole time. Right. It's her own journey that we are seeing and it's related to us. Right. As well. that's I, think that's what, so I think that's what's so powerful about it. Yeah. And you're right until it's not just about saying, Hey, let me help you with this because we are bruised and psychologically mm -hmm. damaged through the system as well. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Even if we didn't, even if we didn't create this system, Exactly. We're affected by it. We see the effects of it. Like you said, housing, education, mass incarceration, drug enforcement, all these types of things. We see that. Right. Health disparities, I think, are now on display during COVID more right. than ever been. I mean, all of this. There's so much more we could say. Anything else you want to leave us on? You know, um, I just would invite folks, if they're interested in learning more about the training that I do, they can check out, check out my, our website, myersparkbaptist.org and look at our, what does it mean to be white training? You know, we're, we're trying to replicate this in different settings where I'm training the trainer. So I'm training people who will then train others to lead folks through this process. And I also just want to say, it's not just about looking at critical race theory as a small group, a white affinity group. There's, I, I also surround this with spiritual formation practices because I'm, I'm really appealing to to people that, that Smith was talking to mm -hmm. in the white Christian. It is, I'm appealing to white Christians who need to go through a spiritual journey of soul seeking to look at whiteness and to, to do so for the sake of working out their salvation with fear and trembling, as they say, and to go through this process with fear and trembling of learning to look longer and harder at that mirror that's put up and see ourselves and not turn away and understand the work that we have to do to not only save our own souls and to fix Christianity, but to, to save the soul of America, still you know, plagued by white supremacy. Yes, we'll leave it there. Make sure to check out MyersParkBaptist.org. That's right. And just type in Google, you know, Benjamin Boswell, what does it mean to be white? And all that will pull up. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. And we look forward to, to seeing what you're going to do, what you're doing with all of this, where it's going to lead to. Thanks, man. It's a true pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www dot piedmont dot edu backslash les